Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Donald Trump's legal problems. If you've been having trouble keeping track of the lawsuits and investigations, it's because there are a lot of them across a range of issues, including how he valued his properties, handled classified documents, his role in trying to overturn an election, and accusations against him of sexual assault and defamation. We'll take stock of our most recent ex-president's legal liabilities as he considers running again, and what could come next from prosecutors. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Do you remember Alan Weisselberg? He's the former CFO of the Trump Organization, who recently pleaded guilty to running a years-long tax evasion scheme. Weisselberg is set to testify in the first criminal trial against Donald Trump's businesses, which starts Monday. And that case is just one of many lawsuits and investigations involving the former president, who wants to run again in 2024, so here to help us sort through them and where they might lead are Jennifer Taub, professor at professor of law at Western New England School of Law. Jennifer Taub, welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also, Luke Broadwater is with us, congressional reporter for the New York Times. Thanks for joining us as well, Luke. Hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, I guess it's good morning there, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Um so, Jennifer, I guess I'll start with you. The Weisselberg testimony, I put this in a bucket of lawsuits and investigations involving Trump that I label financial, just to help me kind of sort through them all. So let's start with with this sort of financial bucket and with this criminal trial that's about to happen in New York on Monday against the Trump Organization. First, can you remind us what it's about? I would love to. And I'm really glad that you put it in the bucket of financial, although I think uh, money is often the chief motivator for everything that Donald Trump does. In this case, this is these are truly um, financial shenanigans. And what is happening, and I'm so surprised folks aren't laser focused on this, is that on Monday, a jury will be selected in New York for a case brought by the Manhattan DA. And this is the very first criminal case ever to be brought 
against any of Donald Trump's businesses. And what this is about, and, and by the way, we, we, we use that term Trump Corporation um, as an umbrella term, but the specific business entities um, being charged there, I'm sorry, we use the word Trump Organization as the umbrella entity, but the, the, the businesses are something called the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. Mm -hmm. And those are the defendants in this case. And yes, corporations can be prosecuted and convicted under New York law. Um, the allegation here is a 15-year scheme um, to engage in essentially tax fraud. Um, and this was, if you might remember, the under-the-table payments that people like Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, received and orchestrated um, to keep, you know, to, to be able to compensate executives in a way that um, meant that the executives weren't paying taxes like they should be. And it'll also allow the Trump businesses to essentially, um, you know, give pay people less than they would have demanded um, if they had been, uh, you know, uh, not getting these goodies. And as we said, Weisselberg uh, pleaded guilty, but as part of that guilty plea, he is testifying against Trump Corporation and, and Trump payroll, I guess, as you were saying it, not Trump himself, right? That's right. Um, but what I'm looking out for or listening for are um, the ways in which Weisselberg implicates other people, especially Donald Trump, um, in his testimony. And here's why. Under New York law, um, in order to um, convict a corporation for the actions of its agents, so that would be the humans that run the business, um, the, the, the only kinds of actions that can um, be attributed or imputed to that business are those um, by a hot, what's called a high managerial agent. Um, mm. And part of that discussion is, you know, did they, were they authorized to do it? Um, and so, of course, the Trump businesses are going to try to act as if the chief financial officer was completely rogue um, and, ha and, and that no one else at the business, certainly not Donald, knew what he was doing. Um, and so that's what we should be um, listening out for. Because if it does implicate Trump, what would he face? Well, first of all, uh, the businesses themselves can't be convicted unless um, Weisselberg was acting kind of in the scope of his employment. And that's going to be easy to show. I mean, he's a chief financial officer. But you've asked the most important question, which is, what could Donald face? And if he's implicated, it could be conspiracy to commit um, some of these crimes or aiding and abetting, you know, the, the, the standard tax fraud. And this may seem like small potatoes because it's only, you know, under $10 million that the plea was uh, for Alan Weisselberg. But I, I should... I should point out that this was the case, you might remember, that Alvin Bragg, that we expected Alvin Bragg to file a superseding indictment and add some of those charges that we've heard about, about the Trump Organization and Donald Trump, in addition to this, being involved in overvaluing real estate property out in Westchester County and undervaluing it when it suited him. This is what we expected. Um, and it never got, uh, Donald was never added as a defendant, and they did not add those additional charges. Instead, those came out in that civil lawsuit that Tish James gave. Uh, right. And there are actually some departures, if I remember, as a result from the Manhattan DA's office, because they did not do the superseding indictment. That is right. We had some very, very 
noisy exits um, by the, the folks who were investing, the very powerful attorneys um, who had come, one had come to the office just to investigate. So that was Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz. Um, and they resigned. Um, and apparently they lost the internal debate about whether to take this um, lawsuit against Weisselberg and the Trump um, businesses and add Donald and also add those additional uh, more serious charges um, as well. But Luke, these issues of, you know, misleading lenders or insurers or doing false or misleading financial statements, as Jennifer Taub is talking about, these are, as she said, the subject of New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil lawsuit that was filed last month. Can you just remind us what was or what is the scheme that uh, Taub says Michael Cohen actually laid out for us back in 2019? Right. And in fact, Michael Cohen's testimony before um, the House Oversight Committee really got um, this this investigation kicked off when he came in and he said that Donald Trump had overvalued certain assets to benefit him and then undervalued other assets to benefit him as as the tax laws go. Um, it, it really it prompted a whole cascading effect of investigations, both in Congress and then also in New York. Mm. And so, you know, it's it's I do see some analogies between this and the January 6th committee, which I know we're going to talk about a little later. But it is um, where you have a congressional investigation that brings in testimony from people close to Donald Trump, starts kicking up dirt and then different law enforcement agencies take the ball and run with it from there. And so I think it was, in fact, uh, Michael Cohen's testimony that was some of the earlier indications about what Donald Trump was doing uh, to try to cheat the taxpayers, according to according to Mr. Cohen. Right. So he was overvaluing to be able to get favorable loans from banks and then undervaluing so he wouldn't have to pay as pay as much in taxes. And sometimes, honestly, he was overvaluing if he could say this uh, when he was, you know, granting what's called an easement um, to his property so he could get a bigger tax break. Um, you know, mm. the, the values went up and down depending on how it would benefit him. The other thing, quickly, Luke, is I know you've just reported this week on additional revelations about how, you know, Trump's businesses um, charged the Secret Service exorbitant hotel rates. And of course, the Secret Service, by extension, the government, right, exorbitant hotel rates to stay in his hotels while he was protecting them, while they were protecting him. Yes, this is another, uh, you know, congressional investigation. And uh, Donald Trump, uh, the the documents that were released from Congress showed that uh, Donald Trump uh, Eric Trump and some others in the Trump administration, uh, sorry, the, the Trump organization, had had basically turned the Secret Service into a captive audience or a captive customer, where the Secret Service would have, because Donald Trump and his, his sons were traveling to their various properties so frequently, the Secret Service would have to accompany them. And then once they were there at these Trump-owned properties, they would be billed very high rates uh, previously, the highest we knew of was $650 a night at Mar-a-Lago, but we learned from this report that uh, it went up to almost $1,200 a night 
at the Trump uh, International Hotel. So, um, you know, obviously this sparked a lot of outrage among Democrats on Capitol Hill at what they saw as basically a, a theft from the taxpayers with this overcharging of the Secret Service and, and by extension, the government. So, um, yeah, th that investigation is still ongoing because they don't have all the charges th from the overseas trips um, and they don't have um, all the charges from the continued Secret Service protection of the Trump family after he left office. But, you know, I think what they did show was 1.4 million in charges to the Secret Service, many of which were exorbitant. So, Jennifer Taub, as you consider these investigations, these criminal and civil cases uh, involving President Trump, what do you think their collective impact will be more broadly? Yeah. Um, let me take the ones that we've spoken about. Um, right. The financial so, shenanigans, I guess, to yeah, use your The financial words. shenanigans. I want to focus on, I think, what is the, the, the more promising one. Um, so the more promising one, I think, is when Attorney General Tish James brought um, that civil lawsuit that we just mentioned related to, um, you know, falsifying business records and, and bank fraud and insurance fraud and maybe tax fraud related to this kind of pumping up an asset when it suited him and making it seem less valuable when it didn't. Um, that lawsuit contains a really important footnote. Um, and that is footnote number one. <laughs> um, it, that is where Tish James mentions that she has made a criminal referral um, to the Department of Justice asking them to look into two specific crimes. One is making false statements to a financial institution and the other is bank fraud. Hmm. Um, and if you didn't know what those were, she actually spells out in the footnote um, what it involves. Um, and, and I'll just tell you, because it sounds just like what he did, that a defendant violates federal law. More after the break, I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about former President Donald Trump's legal entanglements, and we're talking with Jennifer Taub, professor of law at Western New England School of Law, and Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions. 866-733-6786 is the number, and you can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Jennifer Taub, just before the break, you were talking about Letitia James' 
the criminal referral she was making to the DOJ and detailing what was in a footnote to them. Do you want to finish your thought there? Yes. I, um, yeah, I, it's just that she's she's spelling out not just to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, because she could just call him on the phone, right? This is a, there are very few footnotes in this document. This is the first one. And she's saying um, the conduct we're alleging here plausibly violates federal criminal law. And she points to making false statements to a financial institution and bank fraud. And even mentions to us, because obviously Merrick Garland himself knows the law, um, says that, um, we're, you know, we're referring this to the Southern District of New York, which is the um, U.S. Attorney's Office in that same jurisdiction, to look into whether he was, um, whether Donald Trump was knowingly submitting false documents or statements to influence a, a, a bank or to try to get money from a bank um, through false representations. And, you know, everything is laid out here. All the um, prohibited acts, we know these were false statements. Um, we know why they were made. The only question is whether they believe there's enough proof that Donald Trump acted knowingly. And that's mm -hmm. going to be, it's always the case, right? Mental state is always the hardest thing to prove to a jury at any kind of white collar crime case. Um, and that is why so many people who are, you know, white, wealthy, and well-connected can get away with this because um, it's very easy if you have good lawyers and you haven't gotten your fingerprints on any emails um, or you don't use a computer like Donald doesn't, that you can try to hide what you are really thinking um, from others and it becomes difficult uh, to sometimes make the choice to prosecute um, or for a jury to convict. Yes. Well, listener Kim writes, although I'm hopeful this completely corrupt and morally bankrupt individual will be held accountable. The last six years have continually demonstrated this is unlikely. I am so tired of thinking, okay, surely this will be the time, only to see him somehow navigate around it while continuing to poison everything around him. I'm 50% resigned and 50% hopeful that karma will reign. You were just talking, Jennifer Taub, about the difficulty in trying to get people on obstruction, for example, because of state of mind and so on. And I'm thinking about Kim, surely this will be the time because some are suggesting that the issue with the classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago could actually be the time. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can first just remind us of the status of this investigation with regard to Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents. And I guess I should also say that we're trying to put this uh, to help make sense of all of the different legal entanglements that that Trump has, uh, you know, maybe in the category of like federal or presidency related issues that he's facing. Absolutely. And that's a really good pivot because you're right. Proving the state of mind is difficult if you don't have witnesses. I mean, the thing is, there is a witness, Michael Cohen, as Luke mentioned, um, who can speak to what Donald's intent was. But, you know, and, and Weisselberg, but he doesn't seem that he is going to talk about those other issues. But let's move to another area like th that you said, like the Mar-a-Lago documents. And again, um, it may seem like Donald's gotten away with things forever, but I am most hopeful in terms of the rule of law. Um, I'm most hopeful that the very first uh, federal indictment we will see against Donald Trump will be related to those um, documents um, that they found at Mar-a-Lago. And the reason why I'm particularly hopeful is because it appears now, um, based on news reporting, um, that there are witnesses um, cooperating, um, including someone who actually physically moved documents 
or boxes out of the storage room at Mar-a-Lago to uh, Donald's residence at Mar-a-Lago. So, and why is um, this and- compelling? Yeah, why is this compelling? Um, because one of the things that you need to prove is that somebody actually knew that those documents uh, were there. And I know that Donald has said, well, they're mine. I know they're there. But to actually, the the, the, the most compelling charge um, are, are charges um, that were being investigated that are listed in the search warrant include the obstruction one there. Um, and an additional one, uh, so not just a, not just obst- uh, so it's essentially obstructing um, this federal investigation and and also interfering with this grand jur- jury subpoena. And um, Donald would be able to say, I don't know why that guy was moving boxes on the video camera, but it looks like based on what we're hearing about is about this witness that he was told to do that. I mean, no one, mm. you know, is so, so again um, having a witness, a credible witness, speak to what someone's intent was um, will go a long way um, with a jury. I I don't see how Donald Trump is not charged um, for some of the the offenses, whether it's espionage or obstruction um, related to that search. I just don't see how it's possible given everything we know at this point. Well, when do you think that charge from the Department of Justice could come? I don't think it will come until um, December at the earliest um, because there's still this um, battle um, being fought out in the 11th Circuit, not related to the classified documents, but related to the others that will make an important piece of the whole picture. And as you may know, um, the uh, Department of Justice has has appealed um, last week to the 11th Circuit, trying to get Judge Cannon to, to try to get the 11th Circuit to say, that it was wrong for Judge Cannon to appoint special master. But the briefings in that, you know, aren't fully due until November, and then there's going to have to be a ruling, and then it will go up to the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to get to a place where there could be an indictment in December or January. And if not, I'd be very surprised. But I've come to trust Mayor Garland, even though I was suspicious that he was going to be moving slow um, and, and, and afraid to act, but I do believe um, he sent signals that nobody is above the law, not even the former president of the United States. Hmm. Again, we're talking with Jennifer Taub, a professor of law at Western New England School of Law. Also, uh, Jennifer has it will be the host of a new podcast coming out in December called Booked Up with Jennifer Taub. And if you want to read Taub's previous books, they include Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. We also have New York Times' Luke Broadwater with us, a congressional reporter for The Times, and you, our listeners, with your questions. Also, what you think you think the impact of these charges, lawsuits, investigations will be, or if they are something on your minds when you are voting these midterms, uh, whether or not they are something you're thinking about as part of your vote or affecting your vote. This listener writes, I just keep telling everybody to be patient because the case has to be perfect. One error in collecting evidence or presenting evidence could lead to a mistrial or an acquittal. It's worth the wait to do it perfectly. Luke Broadwater, I want to turn to you. You had done an analogy earlier about um, the January 6th investigations. And well, actually, let's just talk about what's happened most recently with January 6th, the committee investigating January 6th first. Um, And in its hearing last week, it decided to subpoena Donald Trump. First, how could that play out? How will how might that play out? 
Well, we're, we're waiting for the actual subpoena to be served as we right. speak, actually. I, I think it might happen while we're on the air. <laughs> so then the ball will be in Donald Trump's court about how he will respond. Um, he has said, he has told aides, according to our reporting, that he wants to do it live, that he he will come in and testify live. No one really believes that that will, will happen, that uh, no lawyer worth their law degree would allow Donald Trump to testify live under oath in front of Congress, con considering his penchant for, for lying and uh, um, stating mistruths. Um, but the committee would be happy if he were to come in live. You know, I've talked to a number of the the sources there, and, and they would be happy if he were to come in and swear uh, and swear the oath to tell the truth and answer the questions. Um, what, what is probably more likely is he will fight the subpoena. He will immediately file a lawsuit, and then it will be adjudicated up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the uh, there is some precedent for um, uh, for. Uh, past presidents testifying before Congress, at least seven have done it. And um, some have done so in response to subpoenas, but it's never been litigated. So we don't know how the Supreme Court might view this issue. And um, the problem for the committee is that they only have a few months left before they are dissolved. So, um, it, you know, if things moved quickly, if Donald Trump refused to come in, the full house could try to charge him with contempt. And then if they did that, they could have a referral to the justice department. Um, but, but those are several steps ahead of, of what's going to happen right now. We're still waiting for the subpoena to be served on, on Donald Trump. Hmm. Meantime, we we've just heard that, uh, that Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months in prison for defying the January 6th committee's subpoena. It went through that process of contempt of Congress and so on. Um, first, what is your reaction to that, Luke Broadway? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the logical conclusion of what could happen with a January 6th com uh, committee subpoena and someone who refuses to comply. You know, uh, Steve Bannon was one of the first subpoenas the committee issued last year, and he fought it tooth and nail all the way. He didn't give them one document. He didn't submit um, one uh, to, to one minute of testimony only after he was charged uh, criminally with contempt of Congress and the eve of his trial did he reach out at the last minute and say oh wait I'll testify now and by then it was too late he had already committed the crime of defying the subpoena and the Justice Department said no the, the crime was committed already and you have to face face justice for it um, so, you know, four months in jail is not an insignificant amount of time. Uh, it, the judge said it was sending a message that people can't just ignore a congressional subpoena. They have to comply. And, um, you know, I do think that, you know, other witnesses would probably think twice before refusing uh, to comply if it means you have to spend four months of your life in a jail cell. Uh, though, as of now, Bannon remains free pending appeal, right, of this? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So the, the judge allowed him to uh, to remain um, out of jail until until the appeals process is runs its course. So you talked about how congressional investigations can affect uh, investigations at the state level. Could could you talk about how the committee's work uh, has affected criminal investigations in Georgia, for example? Right. Yeah. So um 
one of the things the January 6th committee has done is they they got well ahead of the federal investigations, the criminal investigations, and the state uh, criminal investigations. And so because they ramped up with more than 50 staffers, many of whom were federal prosecutors, um, some of whom were former U.S. attorneys, they were able to, and they had a, a pretty good budget. Uh, Congress gave them a pretty good budget to work with. So they, they were able to haul in more than a thousand witnesses and get millions of documents. And so they were able to advance the ball down the field, use a sports analogy, pretty quickly and bring lots of evidence that the public didn't know about to the public's attention at these well-publicized hearings. So all throughout June and July, they had a series of hearings where they laid out some of their evidence. And during those hearings, they described what they said were a number of crimes that happened, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States. They even implied there was sort of a ripping off of donors and uh, some witness tampering that went on. And what we saw shortly thereafter is investigations, both at the federal level and in Georgia, issue subpoenas to the very same witnesses that the committee had already interviewed and issue subpoenas for the same documents that the committee had already uh, obtained or highlighted, and then try to go beyond the committee's investigation. So in some ways, the committee has served uh, even though they can't charge anybody, they don't have any criminal uh, charging power, they have served as a sort of an evidentiary tool that could then later be picked up and used uh, by criminal investigators. Jennifer Top, can you give us a sense of what's your assessment of the case that Fulton County prosecutors are making? Yeah, I think that we should... Um... What Fonnie Willis, who is the um, Fulton County District Attorney, she has really sent some signals out that there could be an indictment of Donald Trump related to violating Georgia state law in connection with the pressure the former president was putting on people like Raffensperger, who was a secretary of state there, to come up with votes, to basically interfere with the election. And, you know, at the federal level, we talk about that as conspiracy to defraud the United States, not the kind of fraud involving money, but the kind of fraud involving trying to defeat a lawful function of government. And at the Georgia level, they have something similar having to do with, you know, interfering with um, the voting or the election. And, um, you know, I see that I see that moving forward um, in part because one of the strongest witnesses that we saw before the January uh, Sixth Committee, Cassidy Hutchinson, was apparently speaking um, with the Fulton County DA. Um, mm -hmm. And so she, again, this idea of what was someone's intent, I think she might have a lot to say about, uh, you know, what Donald Trump was thinking. I mean, no one else in the world um, who is a rational thinker uh, would believe that Donald thought he won the election. And we're now even seeing evidence of him telling people, yeah, yeah, I knew I didn't win, but I'm going to still go ahead and push out these theories and, you know, and lie. And, you know, just comes down to whether the prosecutors have the courage um, to, um, to, to maybe, uh, you know, bring a case that they might not win because of a, you know, runaway jury. I mean, anyone else, anyone else would be charged right now by the, you know, Fulton County DA, by the Manhattan DA, by the um, you know Department of Justice through one of their U.S. attorneys. I don't think there's anyone else 
other than this particular person with so much power who could escape prosecution. So it's just a question of, as your listener said, you know, people don't want to be the one who messes up. Um, but at some point, you've got to get out of, um, and I can't say the word on air, I don't think, but my friend Jesse Isinger wrote a book called The Chicken S Club. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't be chicken ass if you're going to stand up for the rule of law. You've got to, you've got to at some point make the call, um, and prosecute. Well, Luke, we're coming up on a break, but I do want to ask you about a federal judge in California, Judge Carter, who just on Wednesday issued a ruling that could materially affect the Georgia case. Can you quickly tell us about how? Yes. So, um, Judge Carter in California, who it's it's an interesting situation because he's dealing with a civil matter involving John Eastman, who is a, this conservative lawyer who was advising Donald Trump on how to overturn the election. And he, John Eastman is fighting a subpoena from the January 6th committee. So this judge in California is making all these rulings about that case, but they have broader implications because um, John Eastman has invoked attorney-client privilege to protect protect certain documents, and the committee has argued that um, that privilege is pierced by what's called the crime fraud exception. And so the judge has found on several occasions now that there was evidence of a crime in John Eastman's emails and his communications with Donald Trump. And just recently, he produced evidence that uh, Donald Trump had signed a document under oath attesting to certain voter fraud allegations that he actually was told was that those allegations were false. And so there was evidence of, in fact, lying under oath that this judge laid out in the in the most recent uh, ruling here on Wednesday. Yeah, by signing off on something that he'd already been told was false. Again, we're talking with Luke Bodwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times, and Jennifer Taub, a law professor at Western New England School of Law. And you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 if you want to call with your comments or questions, or you can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or email them to forum at kqed.org. We're after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're sorting through the array of criminal and civil legal actions pending against former President Trump and his businesses, investigations that are going on. They range from lawsuits against his businesses, his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election, accusations of sexual assault and defamation, also his handling of classified documents. 
We're talking with Jennifer Taub, whose books include Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, who also has a new podcast coming out in December called Booked Up with Jen Taub, and is also professor of law at Western New England School of Law. We're talking with Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times, and you, our listeners, about your questions about these cases and investigations and lawsuits, what kind of impact you think they will have. I'm also curious if you are paying attention to these or if you are kind of resigned as one of the words that a a previous listener used in a comment. You can share them again at 866-733-6786, posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or emailing forum at kqed.org. Quite a few comments coming in. Leslie writes, why don't we hear the word theft used with the intentional removal of government documents to the private property of Donald Trump? Uh, Jennifer Taub referring to the Mar-a-Lago documents. Why don't we hear the word theft? Well, I mean, it's embedded. It's such a it's a good question. I mean, the, the thing is, that we have a federal legal system, and we have a state law system, right? And at the federal level, the statutes that we what the that the um, that the warrant references where there was probable cause to um, have that search warrant, um, those um, those particular statutes, one of them would um, would relate to that. So, for example, um, things like the concealment removal or mutilation of the of this um, these documents um, or the destruction or falsification of records, those kinds of things apply. Or, or gathering these records, the ones that were confidential, um, you know, that uh, um, that could affect national security under the Espionage Act. All those statutes are meant to um, capture that. I mean, this idea, you know, this isn't a state law kind of um, theft situation. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think the that's probably the reason the reason why. And David writes, I thought ignorance of the law is not a sound defense. Aren't people arrested all the time for crimes they didn't know they were committing? Jennifer? Okay, so, you know, we often use these adages like ignorance of the law is no defense, but every statute is different, right? So generally speaking, the mental the mental state in different statutes varies. Sometimes they say things, nothing at all, and the case law is interpreted. Sometimes it uses the word knowingly and willfully. I mean, very rarely do, do prosecutors need to prove that you knew you were violating a specific law, but sometimes they have to prove that you knew what you did was a violation of some kind of law, and sometimes they don't have to prove that at all. Um, the thing is, though, you know, what, or again, what we said before, what I've said before, um, with an ordinary person um, who did this with classified documents, even one of them would be in jail. And you can look at Reality Winner as one example, and there are many, right? So we're not talking about an ordinary person here. And um, there are all kinds of legal reasons, but also um, status reasons that make it very difficult. Um, for prosecutors to have the courage to bring these cases that they feel like they must win. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Robert in San Francisco. Hi, Robert. Hi, I am Robert in San Francisco. I, I actually applied for, I'm an architect by training, originally from New York, and I applied for a job with the Trump Organization in 1984. I'm glad I never got hired. There would have been a lot of arguments as it to uh, with a very volatile, hostile work environment. I wouldn't have been happy with it. But, you know, everything happens for the best. Uh, you know, Michael Cohen writes very much 
very prolifically about, you know, how he reported to Trump seven or eight times a day into his office and worked with him for 10 years. And Trump had a way of inculcating loyalty and, and, and becoming uh, very good at marketing himself, branding himself as, a, as his organization. And uh, he, he, uh, his first attorney was actually when he started in the early 80s, when he was boy wonder of real estate, Roy Cohn, who was a mob lawyer and hung out with a lot of folks at Studio 54, very much part of that mob mentality. So just an interesting mm-hmm. anecdote to uh, share uh, with you about Trump and his culture and his mindset. Well, Robert, thanks thanks for the anecdote. Um, thinking about uh, Trump in the 80s and, and 90s, I'm thinking about the case this week where Trump is actually a named defendant, Jennifer Taub, and that's the defamation lawsuit brought by the journalist E. Jean Carroll. He was deposed just Wednesday, I believe. Can you first just tell us what's happening and, and what may have come out of that? Yes, and I probably should say um, that in the past couple of years, I have become friendly with E. Jean Carroll. It was mm. after um, the lawsuit. I didn't know her before that, so I should probably... Um, disclose that. Um, what, yeah, um, what's going on in that lawsuit? The latest thing is that this past week um, on Wednesday, um, Donald Trump actually sat for a deposition um, at Mar-a-Lago where he was actually um, answering questions um, under oath, which is kind of Amazing um, that this is the thing we've been talking about. Will he testify under oath, um, you know, before the January fifth committee? Will he testify under oath before Robert Mueller? Well, you know, it turns out um, the one person who actually got him uh, got him to talk was uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers. Um, and just to be clear, those lawyers are quite impressive. Uh, one of them is Robbie Kaplan, who won the case against those folks down in Charlottesville. Um, but to answer your question, um, it does date back, um, Mina, to back to the 90s. And so let me just give a quick what the underlying um, alleged allegations are and how that brings us to this Wednesday, if I might. Um, she uh, she says that um, back in the 90s uh, that she encountered Donald Trump in a, um, in, in a Bergdorf Goodman, which is a department store off of Fifth Avenue, right across the street from his residence. And they had some sort of silly banter. And then he uh, followed her th- th- into this dressing room at where he allegedly raped her at the time. Uh, e. Jean told two friends, one said, you should report this. The other said, no, maybe you shouldn't because he's so powerful. It won't do you any good. Nothing will happen. Um, that was in the 90s. And then back in 2019, she published, she was about to publish a book, which she did publish. Um, and in some sort of p- publicity or some writing about the book ahead of time, it was revealed that one of the things in that book of E. Jean Carroll's was at, at that, that allegation about the, the rape in the dressing room. Well, when that came out, uh, Donald Trump was president, it's 2019. Um, he denied the um, allegations and he, um, and he ba- basically said, uh, you know, never happened and she's not my type. And he dragged her name through the mud. Um, so she sued him shortly after that in 2019 for defamation. Early the next year, she got fired from her job at Elle magazine where she had worked since the 90s as a columnist. Um, so that lawsuit 
um, was just supposed to be a lawsuit against, you know, between E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump, the man, but then the Department of Justice um, under Bill Barr stepped in and said, hold on a second. Um, you know, this is, we have this doctrine called sovereign immunity. Generally speaking, you can't sue the government. You can't sue government employees, but there's this law, the special exception called the Federal uh, Tort Claims Act, um, under which the government allows us as citizens, people like E. Jean Carroll to sue government employees. Um, but in that case, the DOJ takes over the case. So the Department of Justice tried to take over the case uh, brought it to federal court from where it was in state court, tried to take over the case and try is trying to get the case dismissed because um, you, although you can sue the federal government for some kinds of things, like if an employee hit you with their car or something like that, you cannot bring a defamation case, libel or slander. So right now, what they're fighting over um, is whether Donald Trump was acting in the course of his employment when he allegedly defamed her. And if he, if so, uh, the case will be dismissed. While that's being worked out in the courts, the judge involved in the lawsuit said, let's keep it moving. So last week, E. Jean Carroll was deposed. And this Wednesday, Donald Trump was deposed. Um, I got one more thing on this, uh, this twist, which is um, instead of being smart, uh, he was a loud mouth. And what, um, what Donald Trump did instead of keeping his mouth shut is he was so angry that the judge was going to make him sit for this deposition this week, that he offered up fresh defamation. He is now telling people on Truth Social and elsewhere that E. Jean is lying, that she's not his type. He's restating the same defamatory claims against her when he is a private citizen, which means his best defense against this lawsuit to make it go away has now dissolved. So I mm -hmm. think we will see this move forward to trial, which will be in February. We're talking with Jennifer Taub and Luke Broadwater, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, we've got several comments that are really kind of questioning whether or not this will actually have much meaning with regard to impact on Donald Trump or on his prospects, uh, his political prospects as well. For example, this listener tweets, has the media's obsession with Trump put them in boy who cried wolf territory because many Americans have totally tuned you out? And I, I think that's an interesting question. Jennifer, you said at the very top that you were surprised the Weisselberg case, the criminal case against Trump, against the Trump organization was not at the top of the headlines. It has been a bit buried, but this listener is saying that basically the media's obsession with Trump has tuned him out. And, and I wonder, um, you know, w whether you think that's true and, and what the cost of that is, because I think I've seen polls that if an election were held today, I mean, certainly Trump would still be extremely competitive with Biden, even amidst all of these legal woes. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to um, it's hard to calculate what the impact will be. I mean, I think there, there, there's there we can put people in buckets maybe, right? There are people who were no matter what, um, you know, not going to support uh, Republicans in the midterm um, because of or related to, um, you know, them being, you know, Democratic voters and also being frustrated with Trump, right? And into if he runs again. Then there's this other, there's this other camp, this other bucket where no matter what, um, they're full on MAGA Republicans. They love Donald Trump and none of this will have an impact. All that we really don't know about is the folks in between. 
you know, people who are either um, who are independent, uh, not registered as independent, but kind of can change who they vote for um, from election to election. Um, or the, in that same group are the people who are the sort of conservative Republicans, the so-called never never Trumpers. Um, and I think uh, I think this has an impact, but I actually think it depends which piece of this. And I think for what I'm understanding from some of the polling is conservative Republicans are very angry and concerned about the um, threats to Mike Pence's life. People shouting, hang Mike Pence, Donald Trump doing nothing to protect the, his, his vice president, only egging them on. I think they're not happy about the big lie. So I think, you know, I do think it's going to affect some people, but I, I think Donald Trump's behavior is less important to things like the midterms and things like the Supreme Court taking away, you know, a, a constitutionally protected right to abortion in the United States. I think that has a bigger impact than anything he, uh, that any any of these investigations have on uh, on the electorate. Well, um, in a related note, the subpoena has been served, and one of the lines in it is, as demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and obstruct the peaceful transition of power. And this is, of course, a January 6th committee subpoena to Donald Trump. I, I guess on that note, Luke, what has been the reaction among Republicans in Congress to these mounting legal liabilities for Donald Trump? Well, the, you know, they mostly defend uh, Donald Trump. You talk to them in the hallways, they, uh, you know, their voters are still very loyal to Trump, um, large portions of the electorate. And so therefore, that's that's the stance that they take as well. Um, you know, privately, a lot of Republican strategists will tell you that Donald Trump is is terrible for the Republican Party, that, you know, he's of all the candidates they have that they could run in 2024. He is the most likely to lose to Biden out of any of them in any of the polls. He's the most likely to lose um, to, to most of the Democrats. But, you know, the, the voters, the Republican voters love Donald Trump. They, they view him as a fighter for for him, for them and for uh, their worldview. And so they will ignore, um, you know, really what's been an un unprecedented amount of investigations into a former president. You know, I know the the emailer said it's the, you know, the media is um, Boy who cried know, wolf. Mm -hmm. too, too focused on Trump. But um, look, you know, there's like seven different major investigations going on with all different branches of government based on a variety of you know, very suspicious activity. So, you know, I guess he would like the media not to cover the investigations or something, but, you know, that's not really our job. Our job is to is to cover the major investigations that are going on at the Justice Department and and in Congress. Let me go to caller John in Los Gatos. Hi, John. Hi, um, I have a question. Um, it seems that well, part of uh, Trump's uh, incredible Teflon, even compared to Reagan, is that they're still claiming that he's legitimately won. I think the January 6th people, lots of them actually really believed it. I think most Republicans don't. But that whole 
big lie was created before the election even happened. And so why isn't it seditious conspiracy rather than free speech? Why is the Justice Department, why have we collectively let them for almost two years uh, repeat this lie, have whole legislatures in Arizona and Idaho saying mm. that Biden didn't really win? Uh, John- what, why, why is that? Yeah, let me ask Jennifer what she thinks about that. Well, there are seditious conspiracy charges brought um, against people, but you've got to actually um, look at the fact that, I mean, we're, I, I'm not comfortable with the idea that uh, we would prosecute people for saying, I think Donald Trump really won. I mean, there are people who think that Al Gore really won, you know, um, and that the Supreme Court handed him, handed um, Bush the election. And you know what? Those conversations, I think are perfectly fine to have. You gotta, you know, the seditious conspiracy statute in itself um, wouldn't go in the direction that you're describing, even if it weren't um, for the uh, for the uh, U- U.S. Constitution. So we don't have a statute on the books, nor would um, the First Amendment allow um, allow for that kind of punishment. And I I wouldn't want to have that weapon in the hands of any government, because I like to talk about stuff and say what I want to say and don't want to end up in jail. I don't think anyone should. Well, Leah tweets, Trump is a daily reminder that the phrase no one is above the law is a lie, that the justice system is weighed against the poor and powerless. But I think, Jennifer Todd, what I'm hearing you say is wait and see. Uh, Wait and see. Uh, Jennifer Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here with you and Luke. Again, Jennifer Taub is professor of law at Western New England School of Law. Luke, thanks as well. Great. Thank you. And Luke Broadwater is congressional reporter for The New York Times. Thanks, listeners, for contributing your questions and comments. Thanks, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. And we end today's show with a song from one of Forum Engineer Katie McMurrin's favorite artists. She leaves KQED for an exciting new job and her talents, instincts, work ethic. Our morning chats will be deeply missed. I'm Mina Kim. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.